Good evening, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are here uh, last night, welcome back. Uh, for those of you who are uh, new to these uh, lectures of Professor Carlos Ayer of Yale University, welcome. Um, this is uh, the second of uh, three lectures of uh, Professor Ayer of Yale University, um, his brusque history of eternity. Um, this lecture is... Um, in the, um, is co-sponsored by the Princeton University Public Lectures Committee and Princeton University Press. My name is Fred Appel. I'm the senior editor for religion at Princeton University Press, and I'm pleased to welcome you on behalf of the uh, committee and the press. Uh, this per these particular lectures that Professor Ayer is giving are uh, the Spencer Trask lectures, and the uh, committee has asked me to say just a few words about the uh, lecture series. Those of you who, who were here last night, please bear with me um, for the repetition. Uh, the lecture series was founded in 1891 with a gift of $10,000 from Spencer Trask of the class of 1866. And the, uh, this initial gift was supplemented by an additional $10,000 from his estate for the purpose of securing the services of eminent men to deliver public lectures before the university on subjects of special interest. Spencer Trask was a successful financier and one of Thomas Edison's original backers. Last night I mentioned some of the previous Spencer Trask lecturers who, have, uh, who we've been fortunate to have, and I won't go through that list uh, again tonight. Um, uh, it gives me pleasure tonight to introduce the um, faculty member who will be introducing Professor Eyre this evening, uh, Professor Emeritus of History, Theodore Rabb. Well, it's an enormous pleasure for me to be able to introduce my distinguished colleague from Yale. Uh, Carlos Eyre has been one of the leading figures in getting us to understand what the Reformation and indeed what religion is all about. He's published three splendid books on the subject. He's also published a book of memoirs of his Cuban childhood. But for me, it is his first book, War Against the Idols, that has always been uh, of, special, uh, of special resonance. If any of you have ever been to Zurich in Switzerland <clears throat> and have gone to what is perhaps the most remarkable building in that city, namely Ulrich Zwingli's old church, you will have a sense of what the problem that, in a way, this book addressed is all about. You go into this bare stone hall, and when I say bare, I mean bare, the walls are just whitewashed, <clears throat> the windows are plain, and row after row of extremely hard wooden benches, no backs. And there the devout would sit for hour after hour while Zwingli and other preachers hurled damnation at them, told them how sinful they were. Sometimes, like sermons, as far as I can tell, that must have gone on for three to four hours. What on earth possessed people to behave like that? Well, this little book, War Against the Idols, in many respects, 
addresses that question, not directly. It is about the passionate loathing of any kind of representation, any kind of idol, as an accompaniment to worship uh, that the Protestant reformers took up as one of their great causes and, as Professor Eyre demonstrated, ultimately had all kinds of consequences for, if you can believe it, the revolutionary tradition in the modern West. It's a wonderful little book. I recommend it to all of you. He has now raised his eyes and is going to uh, lay before us how the very concept of eternity and indeed heaven has changed over the centuries. Uh, yesterday he dealt with the Middle Ages. Today he's going to deal with the Reformation. His title is Protestantism and the Reformation of Eternity. Professor Carlos Ayer. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Again, I thank everyone uh, responsible for bringing me here, and I thank you for being here at this very late hour, 8 o'clock. Uh, I was trying to remember the last time someone we invited to Yale gave an 8 o'clock lecture, because we usually keep our lectures on the early side. And uh, I had to say it was, uh, it was David Lynch who... Um, well, he was sold out by 5.30, I think. So might be the reason they had him at 8 o'clock. But today's lecture uh, continues, of course, yesterday's lecture. But unlike yesterday, today I will only deal with two centuries, period of the Reformation. And for those of you who were not here yesterday, a brief recap. I uh, went over... Uh, Several points, not all the points possible, but several of the major ways in which the concept of eternity was reified in medieval society and the way in which eternity became something much more than a concept, but actually the, the structure, the very structure of the central institutions of the Middle Ages. And today I want to cover how it is that this world comes apart. And uh, tomorrow, uh, try to assess the significance of what it meant for eternity to enter a different conceptual universe. So, Protestantism and the Reformation of Eternity. I go to seek a great perhaps. Francois Rabelais' final words on his deathbed, or so we are told. It's perfect. It's too perfect. Too perfect and too early modern. And one of the things that I'd like to focus on is why it's possible for someone to say this on his deathbed and get away with it, if in fact he did say it. Eternity was not an abstract concept when Rabelais died in 1553. Praying to the Father in heaven or to the dead saints who thronged the celestial court up there, literally, above the stars, did not involve believing in some other dimension outside of space and time. Neither 
did praying for the dead who might be in purgatory, that place down there, which some Spanish theologians I spent time reading and then later had nightmares, uh, actually calculated a number of leagues beneath our feet is where purgatory lie. And below that, hell. It was a very physical space. Heaven was up there. Purgatory and hell were down below. Very physical places. The dead could be immensely useful. Perhaps even truer and more valuable than any kin or friend on earth. For the saints who had passed over to heaven were loyal advocates, eager to plead one's case before God's throne. And one of the surprises I found reading Spanish wills from the 16th century is that the saints invoked in the will, which is a legal document, are actually called upon as lawyers or attorneys. Same word used in modern Spanish for lawyer, abogado. And there'd be a list of advocates who are going to represent you at la corte celestial, the celestial court. The proximity of eternity was not limited to the souls of the departed either. In churches everywhere, many of the dead were buried within the sacred space, right beneath the living congregation's feet, or perhaps, as was the case with many saints, directly beneath the altar or even above. In brief, space and time were linked directly to eternity through innumerable points of contact, through loci that were very carefully marked off as sacred. And they were all guarded by the clergy, the very same clergy who claimed had control over your place in eternity. Eternity could not only be seen and touched then, but also smelled. I have often tried to imagine what these Madrid churches were like back in the 16th and 17th century when all the dead were buried underneath in the crypts. There was no essential difference between eternity and the here and now as far as the dead was concerned. Any point of contact with the divine realm, any link between the spiritual and the material was supposed to be a link with eternity. Of course, in the Middle Ages, we have plenty of evidence that these bonds with the afterlife or even belief in eternity were not believed in by everyone. We have the Cathars, we have the Waldensians, we have the Lollards, we have the Hussites, all of whom challenged this belief system and the structures supported by them. But most medieval Christians seemed to embrace their dead most ardently and to invest heavily in them figuratively and literally. And the evidence they left behind is overwhelming. And I will only cite perhaps the most familiar example of all which is the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Johann Tetzel, the Dominican, who was preaching indulgences in Saxony in 1517. I won't explain indulgences. I'll let Tetzel do that. Here's uh, part of Tetzel's sermon as captured. There are several versions more or less agree, so we know Tetzel said something like this, and he would address his audiences this way. All of you, run for the salvation of your souls. 
Listen now, God and St. Peter call you, consider the salvation of your souls and those of your loved ones departed. Listen to the voices of your dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you, you can redeem us for a pittance. Don't you wish to? Open your ears. Here the father is saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, we bore you, we nourished you, we brought you up, we left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for a little to set us free? Will you let us lie here in the flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember, you are able to release them. For as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, soul from purgatory springs. Will you then, will you not, for a quarter of a florin, a pittance, a quarter of a florin, receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of paradise? You all know the rest of the story. Luther takes umbrage at this, having gone through a spiritual crisis of his own, a profound spiritual crisis, in his own reading of scripture. He attacks Tetzel, and the Reformation unfolds. And what does it unfold over initially? And what does it keep unfolding over and over and over again? The dead. And how the dead relate to the living. And what power any earthly institution might have or not have over the dead. And right there, in this embryonic stage, Luther's uh, 95 Theses posted against Tetzel. As densely packed as all of the matter in the universe before the Big Bang, this is what we find. We find the dead. And I would like to argue one of the most profound changes brought about by the Reformation. Everyone just simply takes for granted is how it affected the relationship between the living and the dead and the many ways in which this change then has repercussions. What Luther began as an assault on indulgences would end as a wholesale revision of the cosmos. As radical, perhaps, even more radical than that of Copernicus. To believe that anyone on earth could pray for the dead, or pray to the dead, was dead, dead wrong, said Luther. As the pun would have it, dead wrong. And I quote Luther, the scriptures forbid and condemn communication with the spirits of the dead. Luther also demonized all medieval apparition tales, which were so common, especially in monastic culture, which undergirded belief in purgatory. And I quote again from Luther, whatever spirits go about making a noise, screaming, Complaining or seeking help are truly 
the work of the devil. So, masses for the dead then were nothing, Luther put it, nothing but demonically inspired necromancy, perhaps even very close to sorcery. Sounds like a spirit of the dead. <laughs> that was perfect. That was perfect. There's a, the crying of the souls in purgatory saying, don't forget us. Uh, where's your half a florin? Uh, death was no gossamer veil through which the living and the dead remained within sight of each other. Death was final curtain. This is Luther's revolution. Nor was the communion of the saints mentioned in the creed to be understood as anything other than a distant eschatological hope about the promised resurrection and the kingdom to come. Death was the deepest abyss of all, an unbridgeable metaphysical and ontological chasm. And even before space and time were thought of as interdependent, Protestants came close to Einstein by insisting that this chasm between the living and the dead applied to both dimensions. And Luther summed it up as early as 1522 in a sermon, and I quote, The summons of death comes to us all, and no one can die for another. Everyone must fight his own battle with death by himself alone. We can shout into each other's ears, but everyone must himself be prepared for the time of death. I will not be with you then, nor you with me. This in a culture in which one of the most popular, best-selling genre of texts were Ars Moriendi texts, how to die well texts, in which every single text advised every Christian it's necessary to have as many people around you at the deathbed as possible to help you through passage from this world to eternity with their prayers and their help. And Luther is saying, even there, doesn't matter how many people you have around the deathbed, no one can help you. You are alone. The flashpoint of Luther's attack on Tetzel was the doctrine of purgatory and the custom of practicing certain rituals to alleviate the suffering of the dead in the afterlife. What Luther rejected as a medieval invention was actually an ancient practice. I covered some of this yesterday, so I'm not going to spend much time on that, but I will repeat myself because this is so important. Gregory the Great, late 6th, early 7th century, promoted the redemptive power of the Eucharist over the realm of the dead, saying, and I quote, if the sins after death be pardonable, then the sacred oblation of the Holy Host is very useful to men's souls. The Eucharist, the Mass, connection with eternity. And here, in a nutshell, was the rationale behind saying Masses for the dead. Medieval Catholics held firm to five, Catholic, five basic beliefs, all very neatly summarized by Gregory. One, the human person is made up of two components, a perishable body and an immortal soul. And guess what? Every single will 
Spain and the rest of continental Europe, and I think also England, a legal document in two parts. First part deals with the soul. Second part deals with the body. And the soul is a legal entity. (laughs) And in Spain and in much of continental Europe, if you did not have suffrages for your soul included in your will, you would be fined. Number two, the soul separates from the body at death and is instantly judged. Number three, the soul is instantly sent to one of three destinations. Heaven, purgatory, or hell. Heaven is eternal. Purgatory is temporal. Hell is eternal. Purgatory is a layover destination. And actually the diagram works something like this. Because once you're in purgatory, you are saved. Ignore Plotinus. This is the earth, heaven. Keep in mind, uh, purgatory is inside. Just trying to put it outside for sake of diagramming. And uh, hell is also inside, but hell is here. When you die, you have these three destinations. If you die with a single mortal soul, a mortal sin on your soul, unconfessed and unforgiven, one, go to hell, which is eternal. If you have been forgiven your sins by the church, you are therefore able to escape from hell. But for every sin that you commit, and it's a very simple formula, Every sin that you commit, you still owe God something. It's very legalistic. You owe something. You have to pay it. But God is so merciful, he allows you to pay it in the afterlife. And this is where you go to purgatory. And you are there, cleansed. And eventually, you're saved. You will end up in heaven. There are a few human beings who die without the stain of mortal sin on their souls and have actually led such exemplary lives that they go straight to heaven. Very few. Extremely few. Just a given. The vast majority of humankind will have to spend time in purgatory. And masses for the dead help you get out. And there's an even more simple mathematical formula that I've been trying to track down. Who came up with this when? One day's suffering on earth equals a thousand years of suffering in purgatory. So therefore, stays in purgatory are calculated by thousands of years. And how quickly does one mass get you out? Well, here's another wonderful gift Gregory leaves behind. An angel reveals to him that if one says 30 masses for a soul on 30 consecutive days, that frees a soul from purgatory. It's the Gregorian Trentel, as it's known. What did I find in Madrid? I find people asking for a Gregorian masses for the Trentel 
and asking for all other sorts of trentals and other masses on top of that because that's too good to be true. 30 masses will get you out. All of these tenets are neatly summarized in the Latin adage, salus hominis, in fine consistit, which loosely translated means one's eternal fate is decided at the moment of death. And in the handout, not because I want to read it to you, but here for your reference after the lecture, the seven ways in which this is worked out, that the moment of death determines where you end up. And um, most important of all, number seven, ora pro nobis, pray for us. The living on earth can pray for the dead and to the dead. So dying a good death is essential. By far the most important element of a good death is the presence of a priest who will administer the sacraments of penance and give you the Eucharist and also the last rites, extreme unction. Medieval Christians believe that confessing one's sins were so, was such an important thing that the worst kind of death imaginable was death by accident. Sudden accident wouldn't give you a chance to confess. And it was usually interpreted as a sign of divine disfavor. One more set of beliefs and practices loomed large in the official teaching and in the practice of the medieval church. And this is the fact that penance, the sacrament of penance, the forgiveness of sins, did not give one a clean slate. And hardly anyone died with a clean slate. And there are two things working against one another, as is true of much of Christian theology. There is the notion that purgatory is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But also a horrible thing, as you heard in Tetzel's sermon. People are suffering terribly. One of my favorite uh, monastic accounts, a visitor from purgatory. It's a monk who's been too interested in his scribal work and takes enormous pride in his scribal work, and he goes to purgatory for his pride in his scribal work and actually appears dressed in parchment (laughs) with writing on it. And he visits his friend who also is guilty of the sin of pride. He says, oh, I'm in purgatory. And the monk who's still alive says, "Uh, well, it can't be that bad. It's not hell. And uh, the monk who's from purgatory says, I'm here to give you an important message. Here, hold out your hand. Living monk holds out his hand. The monk from purgatory wipes a drop of sweat from his brow, drops it on the living monk's hand, and the drop of sweat goes right through his palm, hissing onto the floor. And that's just one drop, he says. Imagine what it's like to be there for thousands of years. But then we have late 15th century, Catherine of Genoa, a woman who dedicates herself to taking care of the poor and the sick, and is actually very sick herself and probably suffered from some kind of jaundice because she turns yellow. And her contemporaries interpret her suffering as the fact that while she is alive, she is experiencing purgatory. But what does Catherine of Genoa have to say about purgatory? Here's what she says. When the soul is separated from the body at death, 
It instantly realizes its sinfulness, and it, quote, cannot be removed in any other way. Hurls itself, it hurls itself into purgatory. And as she saw it, I quote, in purgatory, great joy and great suffering do not exclude one another. And her reading of it, where a soul to appear before the presence of God with one hour of purgation still due, be unbearable. Worse than purgatory. So these two things work against one another. Purgatory is a great thing. Purgatory is a horrible thing. But where does the teaching on purgatory come from? Luther scans the Bible and can't find purgatory anywhere. Therefore, it's a great invention. Catholic Church used one biblical reference in particular to defend purgatory, but it happened to be in the book of Maccabees from the intertestamental period. And Luther rejects the book of Maccabees, so therefore the only scriptural citation is gone. Purgatory becomes a fiction, an invention. And then, by attacking purgatory itself, by attacking the system of suffrages for the dead, and attacking also the intercession of the saints in heaven, Luther and every single Protestant reformer reject the medieval cosmos. The living on earth have absolutely no contact whatsoever with the dead. None. And if they think they're having contact, it's because the devil is fooling them. Why ha- the, the ghost of Hamlet's father is such a troublemaker. He's not supposed to be there. Yeah, see, uh, Shakespeare's uh, Anglican church doesn't believe in these apparitions either, but it's still part of popular culture. So Shakespeare does a, what only a genius can do. He creates this ambivalent character of the ghost who his audience would recognize, or many of his audience would recognize, as a troublemaker, precisely because they've been already taught for several years that any apparition from the dead, demonic. Luther sealed the fate of purgatory by challenging the church's theology of salvation technical term, soteriology. And here in the handout, if you look at the bottom, this I would like to go over with you. Because it's not just the fact that purgatory is not mentioned in the Bible, but the fact that the whole theology of salvation that that makes this scheme comprehensible is also declared false by Luther. Five very basic points. Sola fide, sola gratia. One's place in the afterlife is not at all determined by one's actions. All human beings are sinners. All human beings are corrupt. All human beings are so so purely, fundamentally damaged by original sin that we all deserve hell. But God is merciful. 
God decides to give his grace. Forgive the penalty coming for one's sins. So one is saved by faith alone, not as Luther harped on constantly, not by works. Not by works righteousness. Number two, simul justus et peccator, the ultimate Lutheran paradox. One is simultaneously justified and a sinner. God simply decides to overlook one's sins. One of my favorite images in Luther describes uh, the relationship between the soul and the divine as a spiritual marriage. But the imagery changes completely from medieval imagery of uh, espousal. Because the soul is like a whore, like a loose woman who marries a very good man. And the good man decides to overlook the fact that his wife is a whore. That's the relationship between God and the soul. It has nothing to do, nothing one can do. So, number three, Theologia Crucis. It is Christ alone who saves. Not anything one can do. Number four, very important. If it's not in scripture, forget it. Not true. And number five, very important. Rome is the root of all evils and of avarice. The Pope in Rome is a liar and the Antichrist. Purgatory and saintly intercession are both scriptural fictions and theological errors of the highest magnitude. And if you turn over the handout, a wonderful engraving by Cranach of the true and the false church. And there are many, many, I could spend the rest of today's lecture just on this, but I just want to focus on one thing, on the fact that the difference between the true and the false church here focuses very intensely on the fact that the Catholic Church is constructed around the dead. Here on the top you have the true church, and you have Luther in his pulpit preaching from the Bible, and um, he's getting this straight from God through Christ. And over there in the center you have a baptism being performed, because there are only two sacraments mentioned in the Bible represented here, baptism and the Eucharist. And you notice Luther has no problem with crucifixes and images. Actually, for him, the image of the Lamb of God, of Christ as the sacrificial lamb, was very, very important. And the crucifix was very important. And whom do we see there under the um, pulpit, right under Luther? His prince, John Frederick, who was being... Uh, at this moment, he had uh, fallen captive to Emperor Charles V and was actually there. That's why he's bearing his cross. But the important thing is that you see there are no dead in this picture. What's heaven filled with? Little cherubs, angels. There are no dead anywhere in this picture. Go over to the other side, the false church. And uh, I should point out, these engravings are side, side by side. I had to split them up this way for the page, but they should go side by side. What do we see off in the distance? We see a funeral procession. What do we see up in heaven? This is uh, St. Francis up there. Uh, 
if the print were better, you could see that uh, St. Francis has the stigmata on his hands. But he's not actually doing anything. And God is, uh, pardon my French, really pissed. This is fire and brimstone uh, at the scene underneath. What do you see directly under the fire and brimstone? You see the clergy hovering over a dying person. And then what do you see also? A priest offering a mass. And you see also up here in front the clergy selling indulgences. And who is preaching? A fat monk with a little devil on his shoulder blowing in his ear with bellows. He's not preaching from scripture. He's... But that's an important contrast. Luther is preaching from scripture alone. The preacher, Catholic, is getting it from the devil. But look at the, just compare and contrast the fact that the Catholic scene is filled with the dead. And this is the difference between the true and the false church which an illiterate person, many illiterate people at whom these images are aimed, will instantly grasp what is going on. And it's not just in print. We have plenty of Reformation pamphlets from the 1520s especially, written by lay people, not by clerics, in which topic number one, number two, number three, number four, number five is the way in which the Catholic clergy are fleecing the laity, and have built their entire empire on the dead. Nicolas Manuel, a Swiss painter and playwright, writes a play, The Totenfresser, Those Who Feed Upon the Dead, in which he just rips into the way in which the Catholic clergy work the guilt to get people to fork over money and um, there's another play he writes on the death of the mass, which also focuses on the way in which the mass no longer able to help the dead because the Reformation has wiped this out. The mass just croaks at the end. And one of the characters, or several of them, I can't remember if it's just one or several, end up using holy oil to shine their shoes. The ultimate disrespect. Purgatory is dead. So what we have is a great change from uh, salus hominis in fine consistit to salus hominis in fide consistit. One letter that makes a world of difference. And I should add, and I should emphasize this, this was shared by all Protestants. They disagreed about many things, and especially about the Eucharist and about baptism, those two sacraments. They did not disagree on this. A little quote from one of these pamphlets. This one happens to be an English one rather than a German one. If there were any purgatory and every mass that is said should deliver a soul out of purgatory, there should have never been a soul there. For there be more masses said in a day then there be bodies buried in a month. The segregation, living and the dead, is also physical. And this is one of the changes that the Reformation begins to affect gradually at first. Burials stop taking place inside churches. 
England is different, but in many places throughout Europe. And now there are a lot of people doing work in, in Germany and in England on uh, death ritual. But the cemetery is moved farther and farther and farther away from the church. In many places, it's moved outside the city walls. So the living and the dead are separated even further. In commenting on a revision of Nuremberg's criminal code in 1521, a jurist ruled that punishments could no longer be meted out to the corpses of criminals, as was customary. Citing Luther in his report, this jurist gave the following opinion, and I quote, After death, a person is freed from all human authority and stands in God's judgment alone. This momentous change this disappearance of purgatory, this disappearance of the dead physically, their removal, was also an economic revolution of sorts. And how can I best point this out, except to go to Catholic Spain, where the amount of money spent on masses truly, truly mind-blowing. I did research in Madrid. Someone I did not know at the time was doing research in Cuenca, another city not too far from Madrid, but far enough to make it a very different place. Saranal. We were both doing research, didn't know each other existed. Thankfully, we came up with the same data. <laughs> Spending on masses for the dead increases throughout 16th and into the 17th century. I was not able to look at parish records because the parish records all disappeared in the 1930s during the Spanish Civil War. In a fit of Orwellian peak, the uh, Reds burned all the church archives, wipe out the past. But Saranel had parish archives, and she could actually uh, correlate whether the masses that people asked for were actually said. <laughs> I just simply had the requests. Sarah Nall had the requests and then the records. She also had records that recorded how these masses were funded. How were most masses funded? Well, yes, people left cash behind in their wills. But more often than not, and keep in mind, people who write wills are people who have property. Real estate funded masses either by rents on land or by outright gifts of land to the church. By 1650, thanks to masses for the dead in Cuenca, where Saranal was able to trace the money, 50% of the land in and around Cuenca is owned by the church in one way or another. And 20% of the population Cuenca are clerics. One of the most shocking things in these wills from the 16th and 17th century in Spain, the individual who leaves his soul as universal heir and leaves the entire estate to his soul. 
My favorite case, one Spanish cleric. And then again, you know, we get into the question, uh, are the elites, as, as the Reformation pamphlets tell us, are the clerical elites fooling the lay people? Do the clerical elites know better? I found plenty of priests who left their entire estate for their souls. And one priest in particular who knew his family would sue <laughs> had a very nice and very long paragraph and how he had earned this money himself, especially by saying masses for others. And now his turn has come. And he doesn't want anyone challenging this in court. His soul deserves these masses. And the number of masses said, even more surprising to me, a corresponding inflation to the inflation in the Spanish economy. As the price of wheat, oil, raisins, everything goes up, so does the price of a mass. And so does the number of masses that people think will get them out of purgatory. So that in the 1520s in Madrid, the average number of masses is 25 or so. By the time you get 1590, and the same in Madrid as in Cuenca doesn't matter that Madrid is the royal court and things are a little higher. They rise proportional. Six to nine hundred masses. About six hundred in Cuenca, about nine hundred in Madrid. I was trying to figure out the relationship between the inflation in mass requests and mass prices to the inflation in the economy. So during one of my stays at the Institute for Advanced Study, I went to consult Albert Hirschman. He explained the simple part to me very nicely. But then he said, and you know, this is where uh, we historians sometimes fail to see the forest for the trees, or sometimes the trees for the forest. His sole comment after explaining the mathematical part of the problem, imagine what they could have done with that money. <laughs> Not just they, the people, but Spain as a whole. Imagine what they could have done with that money. In all of Protestant Europe, this money stops going to the dead. And the money that goes to the dead, what does it really go to? It creates the need for priests. It creates the needs for this priestly clerical class. One of the biggest changes the Reformation brings about is the sudden drastic reduction in the number of clergy. One example, well-documented, Geneva, 1535, a city of 10,000, has 300 clerics. Geneva becomes Protestant, 1536. Even after Calvin gets there, the highest number of clerics in the 16th century in Geneva will be nine. 300 to nine. And the population does not change. As a matter of fact, the population of Geneva grows as refugees from France come in. So what can we make of this? We can make many points uh, stand out. Not just economic, social, political, but more important, cultural in the sense that, uh, well, in a, in a way, in a general, very general sort of way, 
the cultural changes can be easier to grasp without research, without facts and figures. And I debated long and hard whether I should have graphs and charts to hand out to you, and I decided no. The cultural changes that take place are enormous. Protestants did much more than simply change beliefs by doing away with purgatory, rejecting an accessible eternity, and segregating the living and the dead. They reordered their society, their economy, and their culture. In the 16th century, the change beliefs was to change the world. Catholics had a way of interweaving the temporal and eternal, despite the fact that they kept saying they were as different as night and day. And they also had a way of calling the dead to mind in a very concrete way, refiguring and representing their social presence constantly, whether through relics or masses for the dead. The dead were not merely remembered among Catholics, but were actually remembered, put back together, reintegrated into the social and economic fabric of the community, even though they were invisible. They cost money. Masses for the dead, like the relics of the saints, served various purposes simultaneously at different levels. And one of the strangest things about masses for the dead is that they are both currency and a commodity. They buy something, they cost something. Among Protestants, what do we find in place of masses and relics? What, if anything, fills the void left by the disappearance of the dead? Social and cultural repercussions of this redefinition have never been the subject of sustained study. Only very recently has it been proposed that severing the bond between the living and the dead should be viewed as a major change in the daily lives of Europeans. And there are a few brave people, brave souls, I dare say, who are working on this, especially in Germany and in England. On a personal and social level, the shift from a communally shared responsibility for each death to a personal, individual, and very private Death signifies a turn towards individualism, a very important turn towards individualism that I think can be viewed as very modern for those who look signs of transitions to modernity. Well, here is a big one. This individualistic turn was most intense for Protestants at the moment of death, and Martin Luther was well aware of it, and I quote him again. The summons of death comes to us all, and no one can die for another. Everyone must fight his own battle with death by himself alone. The psychological and cultural impact of this individualism needs more scrutiny. Death ceases to be a communal experience. Eternity becomes ever more distant. Protestants now face the divine tribunal and their eternal destiny alone at the end of this life. 
Max Weber, among others, and many who are resurrecting Weber's insight, like to think of modern as secular. What is the Reformation? Well, the Reformation is very modern. Why is it modern? It secularizes the world. It demystifies the world. Think about a minute what secular means. Remember, seculum, this age, this time, this earth, versus what? Versus eternity. To be secular, to secularize, is to cut off eternity and to focus only on this world. This is the great change. The this worldly, as Weber put it, this worldly asceticism, especially of Calvinists, only this world we can focus on. The other, a total unknown, a large question mark. Yes, there are all sorts of promises, but it's severed from this world. In closing, because I'd like to leave more time for questions today than I did yesterday. Religion is all about finding more in life than meets the eye, and especially about intimations of immortality. Protestant Reformation is a key turning point in Western history for many reasons. Anyone who singles out one or two of the changes brought about by the Reformation is really shortchanging history because it had many. And it's a long list of changes. But I would like to argue way up on the list, among the biggest of the changes, we can see the dead vanishing. Vanishing into a very nebulous eternity with only two doors on the horizon because this one, I'll get dirty, wiped out. There is no possibility of making up for anything in the afterlife. Everything is here and now. And how do you get this faith? How do you get this grace? Well, that's the big question. Luther will never, ever, ever go to the logical conclusion of his theology of grace and faith alone, which means if you can't do anything, that means God gives it to you. Well, God decides. God predestines. Uh, the Reformed Protestants would be much more willing and courageous to embrace the logical conclusion that, in fact, if you're saved by grace alone, you are predestined. Well, how do you know whether you're predestined or not? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a whole very, very hard thing to preach from the pulpit. And how do you get people to be good? if, in fact, everything's already prearranged, a conundrum of sorts. The Catholics, the medieval Catholics, had their conundrums. Protestants have their own conundrums. The Reformation of Eternity was the first step towards the elevation of this world as the ultimate reality and towards the extinction of the soul. And here I am going out on a limb, being as extreme as I can. I am not suggesting an immediate causal relationship, but merely pointing to a very clear trajectory over several centuries. And tomorrow's lecture will pick up on this. 
that we can think of ourselves in the early 21st century as animals and as closer to chimps than to God is a culturally conditioned response, a response that requires the spiritual apartheid that Protestant reformers began to enforce on the dead in the 16th century. Thinking this way is our greatest blessing and our greatest curse as a culture. And here I am not speaking as a historian, simply as a not detached observer of what I study. It's our blessing because it keeps us from blowing ourselves up on crowded buses for the sake of some unseen paradise where we will cavort with virgins eternally, or from killing each other over the correct interpretation of the afterlife, which people did in the 16th century and 17th. It's our curse because it makes death so final and life so bothersome or perhaps even meaningless. So, we rage against the dying of the light along with the poets, knowing our words ultimately signify nothing. Thrilled by our material wealth, irked by the dust in a bowl of roses, and like Pascal, whom I will cover tomorrow, frightened by the eternal silence of those infinite spaces beyond our thoughts. like Oprah. Um, from all the things you've said, he rezones purgatory. Um, at what point did Martin Luther sit there and say, maybe there is no God at all, but if I try and market that, they're going to run me out of town on a rail? Luther never quite gets to that point, but in reflecting on his own spiritual anguish at various times, and um, what he called anfechtung, which is a deep, dark depression. The dark night of the soul. There are passages in Luther, if you compare them side by side with John of the Cross, and especially his description of the dark night of the soul. Very similar. And Luther does say that if you use your reason alone, you have to conclude, and I'm paraphrasing, and I can give you the citation later if you want, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) If you use your reason alone, you have to conclude either God does not exist or God is evil. The fact that he would create a world in which original sin would be part of it and he would have foreknowledge of this is just too troubling. But you have to accept it on faith that no, God is good and merciful and God exists. But no, Luther would never get to that point. But Luther also believed intensely in the devil. And this also has to be kept in mind. The the devil is not tossed aside with the dead. The devil 
becomes very real for Luther. Not so much for the Reformed Protestants, but for Luther, the devil becomes very real. And it comes out most often in his table talk when he met, uh, had dinner with his students and they recorded every word he said. And, and you can tell the, the more beer he drank, the more outrageous his statements became. Tells a story once that uh, while he was at the Wartburg hiding from the emperor and translating the Bible, he went back up to his room, which was up in a high tower, found a dog on his bed. And he had never seen the dog before. So he concluded, as many people would have in his day, it must be the devil. So he picked up the dog and threw it out the window. And went to look for it. And he couldn't find it. Which was proof conclusive that that was the devil. Because he couldn't find the corpse. No dog would have survived the fall. So... Luther is very modern in this sense that he has his doubts, he expresses his doubts, but he also has uh, this not totally modern cosmology. Yes? How did the Something I've been trying to figure out. Could you hear the question in the back? How the Catholic Church assigns a temporal measuring, measuring right, for the afterlife. There is this equation, and it's a very suffering on Earth, a thousand years in purgatory. But what a thousand years can mean obviously has a different measure. And uh, as far as I can figure out, there is relativity years. In purgatory, because human history will end. It is for all these thousands of years right now. It's a whole other dimension. But I have yet to find. But in popular piety, it takes hold, and it takes hold in a very, very real way. If anyone can help me with this, if anyone knows where this formula comes up, I'd love to find out. Some clue where to go to look for this formula arises. But it becomes as real as money. Part of my argument is that it actually does become as real as money. It costs money. Does this history of um, church leadership indicate an exploitation of man's inability to conquer his fear of death? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a fear that is expressed uh, before Christianity comes along. It's a fear that continues to be expressed. Now, this is one way of placing certainty on the uncertain. And here's why I began with Rabelais, you know, and it's pretty early, 1553. I go to seek a great perhaps. Oh, how perfect. How many people shared this, this belief? And, uh, you know, the historian Lucien Febvre argued that uh, unbelief in our sense of unbelief is impossible in the 16th century <laughs> because the, the matrix was, was so tightly woven that, in fact, uh, real absolute out-and-out out skepticism and atheism was impossible. But I mentioned yesterday 
we have, I don't know if anyone has tallied how many cases, definitely hundreds of cases, the Toledo Inquisition and other inquisitional tribunals in Spain of people tried for simply saying that they didn't believe in anything past this world. But this is a very comforting thing, this, all this ritual, all this remembering. And I actually use remember in both sense, remembering and remembering, reincorporating the dead into society. At the very top, the king, Philip II in Spain, not only requests that within one month of his death in monasteries all over Spain, 30,000 masses be said. <laughs> he asks for other masses too and sets up a perpetual high mass every day at the Basilica of the Escorial on the altar that lies directly above his grave. <laughs> and he set up his bedchamber in such a way that while lying in bed through an open door, could see the priest at the altar saying mass. And his bedchamber was right above his burial chamber, which was also intended to be the burial chamber of all of his descendants and successors. <laughs> and this is the paradigm at the very top. So it's not a question of, you know, clerics and kings and elites who wink, wink, know better and fool the people. It's part and parcel of the, the whole fabric. And uh, the king sets the tone. And um, when accounts are published of Philip II's death and burial, and all, all of this is made, the Escorial is in a remote place that most people never see. It's built at a day's journey outside Madrid, back then without uh, engines, a whole day on horseback. Hardly anyone sees it. But there are Lots of books published about the Escorial explaining its every detail and how it works as, and I love this word, machina. It's a machina. It's, it's, it's a functional thing. It's not just a building. It's a functional thing. So, yes, it's uh, based on the fear of death, but it's something that's very pervasive. And uh, kings and uh, clerics not only embody this. They're, they're part of it. They, they pass it on. The skeptics are there, though, definitely. And in uh, what numbers? We will never know. Uh, and what about, you know, between skeptics and believers, how many people are unsure <laughs> with lots of question marks over their heads? We'll never know either. Uh, if spending so much for the dead is a sign of anxiety or a sign of comfort and belief in this system. I mentioned Sarah Nall's study. She and I reached very different conclusions with the same data. Her conclusion was that all of this spending, like an empty shell, it's hollow inside. It's a sign of anxiety and people going through the motions and going through ritual and being insecure. I, I, I take a, an approach that, uh, well, I want to see both things at once. I think it's a sign of anxiety. I think, yes, there's a kind of obsessive, compulsive nature to it. Uh, but it, there's also a, a very comforting, there can be, there can be a very comforting dimension to this all, to think that uh, one is helping the dead 
or that the dead are, are helping the living. Protestants take the dead and one of my favorite lines in American literature, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Wise Blood, character of Hazel Motes. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. It goes around preaching the church without Christ. Set in uh, the rural south in Georgia, probably right after the war. It goes around preaching the church without Christ, where the, where the lame don't walk, the blind don't see, and what's dead stays that way. That's it. That's Protestantism. There, the dead stay that way until the resurrection. Until the resurrection. It's not that Protestants cease to believe in resurrection, but between now and the resurrection, we don't know. So, so meanwhile, back in Rome, yeah, uh, we have Michelangelo and Raphael and the High Renaissance. Is is that what this money is funding? The, Directly the, and indirectly. Actually, the the, 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 the indulgences that, that uh, Tetzel is selling are for the building of St. Peter's. The very St. Peter's we see today is that right? was uh, supposed to be funded by these indulgences. That's why he says God and St. Peter are calling out to you. So yes, this eventually goes to Rome, and this is a whole part of the package that Luther uh, rebels against. You know, there's a national, I didn't even want to go there, you know, but there's a nationalistic dimension to all this. You Romans, you're fleecing us, you know, you call us barbarians and you take our money. Uh, there is this dimension to it, yeah. It, it, it does have an international dimension. But the Council of Trent, what does it do? How does it respond to this Protestant challenge? Very interesting. At one level, they say, let's ratchet this up. And they do. And the Council of Trent has several decrees uh, defending purgatory, defending masses for the dead, and uh, invocation of the saints, uh, representation in images, and so on and so forth. But it does away, or tries to do away, with what it calls superstitious practices. The wills I read and Sarah now read before the Council of Trent are filled with references to certain kinds of masses and mass cycles, Trentals especially, named after this saint or that saint. They instantly vanish after 1565, after a synod in Toledo meets to uh, put the Council of Trent into practice. But the 30 masses of St. Gregory become more popular than ever. So they do away with kind of local practices, which are many of which are labeled superstition, and they go for the centralized one, because, you know, uh, Gregory was a pope, and a great pope, Gregory the Great. So they try to push the universal over the local, but to ratchet things up uh, much, much more than, okay, you Protestants want to deny this? Fine. We'll, uh, we'll intensify our, our end of it. Thank you.